Opposite Platypus Says, episode 30. Happy belated Thanksgiving, everyone. Everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, We just had the event, a platypus event, future after the election. What's left? We had it uh, just yesterday. Uh, about the past and future of the left after the 2020 election hosted by George Mason University in Virginia. And uh, we have a special episode taking stock of the left under Trump in the last four years and looking forward to the left under the mm-hmm. Biden presidency. So we will we'll include a link to the uh, panel that just happened on Saturday night in the description so you can check that out as well. This is part of a platypus effort to make sense of mm-hmm. the election and the left after the election. Uh, We're going to be talking to Benjamin Studebaker, who's a PhD in political theory from the University of Cambridge, Conrad Cartmel from Portland DSA, and Caitlin Buck and Mara Hanau, who are in Philly Socialists. So that's who you'll hear, and they'll introduce themselves at the beginning of the segment. I should say, there is a baby in the background. Mara was also childminding when she was recording. So if you hear a small small child, then we're sorry about that. Yeah. Working moms. Yeah. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are Shit Platypus Says. On Twitter, we are Platypus Says. It would be also great if you could leave us a review on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. And we're also on YouTube at the Platypus Affiliate Society channel where you will find the recording to the future after the election, what's left, but we'll also include that in the episode description. So I hope you enjoy this special episode we've put together for you. I feel like this is the most guests that we've had on the podcast ever. <laughs> a historic moment. Uh, so we wanted to get some different voices from the left together to have a post-election roundtable discussion. And joining Sophia and I are Benjamin Studebaker, who's a PhD in, or who just received his PhD in political theory from the University of Cambridge. And Ben, you're also in the British Academic Union in the UK, right? Yep. Cool. And then is Conrad Cartmel from Portland DSA, and he's part of the Class Unity Caucus. And then we have Caitlin Buck and Mara Hanau, who are both in Philly Socialists. And Mara, I think that you said you were a co-chair, is that right? Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. So we we have some questions, uh, but we wanted to start off with a pretty platypus 101 question uh just briefly to introduce yourselves and your organizations your projects where you based and most importantly what brought you to the left i'm based in portland oregon i'm a member of a socialist organization called class unity which uh, organizes both inside and outside of the dsa attempting to build you know like an explicitly uh, socialist politics in in the United States mainly, but we do have um, international members as well. During the Obama years, I was very exposed to, you know, kind of Democrat critical left media, kind of around, you know, the Snowden leaks and the, uh, the Chelsea Manning WikiLeaks stuff. 
but then really got interested in the left per se through reading the work of Simone de Beauvoir and Adolf Reed in college, um, and then kind of moving on to Marx and other stuff from there. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, the Bernie campaign as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. I just finished a PhD at Cambridge. Uh, I got into politics very early when I was eight during the Gore-Bush election. And uh, for me, the reason why I associate with the left and think of myself as left wing uh, is, is that I really am opposed to exploitation. I think that exploiting people is really fundamentally wrong. And as an academic, as somebody who writes and talks and thinks all the time, the only way that anybody can live that life of leisure, that philosopher's life, is with lots and lots of other people working very hard under very miserable conditions so that there's money and resources to fund universities and to fund intellectual work. And I think the only way we can possibly justify uh, what we do and, and our lives is to give something back to the people who are working so hard so that we can live so comfortably. And Caitlin. Um, I'm Caitlin. I'm the director of communications for Philly Socialists, um, which is based in Philadelphia, obviously. And we have quite a few different projects that we work on um, throughout the city. For example, Community Garden, um, Tenants Union. We have a mutual aid program that we started up at the beginning of COVID that has you know, kind of changed throughout the pandemic and is now based in Kensington. And there are quite a few things, I think, that kind of all brought me over to the left. When I was, I was a freshman in college during the Bernie campaign in 2015, and that was the first time I had heard someone on like a national level like that talk about socialism in a way that was not utopian or, or like as if it was actually achievable and not kind of insane. But then also... Uh, at class I took about the history of modern Latin America and learning about imperialism and American intervention in Latin America was really that what kind of pushed me into like actually learning about socialism and not for, in a sort of like social democratic way um, so yeah mm-hmm. and Mara? Yeah I am currently uh, one of the two co-chairs from Philly Socialist um, and it's also my last term, so it will be my last time serving on the Central Committee. But I joined nine years ago, right after the Occupy Wall Street kind of thing that was going on. I was, uh, I was in college, and I had to drop out because I was like a single mom, and it was just like a lot of things going on in my life. And to me, it, I, wanted, I was looking for like some kind of political organization to join in Philly, but I was not, I, did, I had no experience with political organizations at all. I just like uh, had seen the stuff that was going on at Occupy Wall Street and people were doing like an occupation in Philly and I maybe like donated things to there and whatever, but I never, I ended up finding like, I didn't find like um, like a Philly socialist until maybe the end of 2011 when the, we were starting out the garden at the time. Uh, and I joined through that because it just felt like the only organization that was actually doing something that was not just talking politics and people and had more like a more, more of a real purpose and like a real plan. 
it also I just wanted to give our listeners a chance to kind of see where different people are coming from something that I I told some of you guys um, when inviting you on to this conversation was that in Platypus we'd like to present different parts of the left people that don't necessarily agree with one another because we think that the disagreements on the left are important and that the left shows its weakness when it can't actually engage in meaningful disagreement across uh, the left so in that spirit yeah um, we have some questions um, about this election and what lies ahead um, for for the left. It's noticeable that we're all kind of young-ish. There's a lot of coming to age under, I guess, the end of um, George Bush, W. Bush and, and Obama. So here is our first set of questions for you guys. Uh, what is your assessment of the left under the last four years of Trump? What are the meaningful shifts or changes on the left under Trump? And was anti-Trumpism a problem or an opportunity for the left? And if so, how so? Starting with the anti-Trumpism question, I think that the sort of anti-Trump orientation has been, you know, perhaps over the past four years, uh, there have been some short-term gains made in left-wing organizations in terms of membership and activity levels due to the focus on anti-Trumpism. But as Trump recedes into the background as, you know, more of a cultural figure or, uh, you know, at least not particularly relevant for national politics over the next four years, I think that this is going to come back to bite people in a pretty big way. Um, Similarly, I think the uh, and, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this myself, the orientation around the Sanders campaign and demands of the Sanders campaign is going to be a problem over the next four years. You know, demands like Medicare for all, free college, these things are realistically not really on the table with, um, you know, either literally or in the popular imagination um, as kind of the memory of Sanders uh fades into the background. Um, And for people who are still very much oriented around trying to bring those demands to the foreground, I think that's going to be a really big issue. Yeah, I I think that the last four years were very disappointing. I think that we very quickly got off of talking about the universal issues that activate large numbers of people, including lots of people outside the traditional Democratic Party base. Uh, In 2016, Bernie Sanders was very successful in winning rural counties relative to Hillary Clinton and winning uh, mountain states, Midwestern states. And the campaign's rhetoric and strategy changed from 2016 to 2020. It became much more about targeting Hillary Clinton voters. And in the course of trying to do that to win the primary, it became a much more conventional Democratic Party campaign in its emphases and rhetoric. This, I think, was accelerated by the squad and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who ran, AOC ran, in a Hillary Clinton voting district. And the emphasis became much more uh, social issues relevant to universities and professional class people and much less relevant to the people who were brought into the movement by Bernie Sanders in 2016. And for this reason, we aren't having opportunities to expand out and potentially win in places that we previously couldn't compete. We look much more like the pre-2016 left, 
which was marginal, small, and focused around already heavily, heavily Democrat voting areas. And because of that shift, our prospects look very bad, especially as we enter a Biden era where Joe Biden potentially is going to dominate the narrative of what the Democratic Party is. The shift in the Sanders campaign from 2016 to 2020, I think, was probably ignored by a lot of people who were involved in it at the time. But, you know, my sense kind of during the 2020 campaign and especially directly afterward when he just, you know, folded um, sort of unexpectedly rapidly in the primaries was that the Sanders threat had probably already been dealt with by the time that the 2020 primary actually rolled around. It, he had been through anti-Trumpism and through, you know, just the kind of internal logics of Democratic Party politics been turned into, you know, maybe not personally a Democrat like any other, but was certainly playing a game that was more similar to kind of a typical Democrat campaign than he had been in 2016. What was the potential Sanders threat that you describe? I would say the potential Sanders threat would be kind of bringing to bear a crisis in the Democratic Party electoral coalition. Uh, you know, the Democrats balance a lot of different issues and a lot of different constituencies against each other in their attempt to organize elections, you know, in any place, but particularly at a national level. And promoting the independence and the more autonomous activity of certain segments of that coalition could have caused some real cracks um, and damaged the Democrats' ability to kind of glue them back together again. But as I said, I think that was pretty much dealt with by 2020. Similar to the disruption Trump has caused in the Republican Party. I guess I'm not as much of an expert about Trump as I am about Sanders, because obviously I didn't campaign for Trump and uh, living in beautiful um, Portland, Oregon. I don't know that many people who are very serious Trump supporters, although I do know a few who are like more casual Trump supporters. You know, sort of like Sanders, it seems like the Republicans have managed to kind of integrate all those discontents in their their constituency as well. It's not clear to me that either Trump or Bernie really pushed that crisis to any sort of breaking point that will have dramatic effects. Yeah, the interesting thing about that strategy was the possibility of party capture in the interest of realignment. The idea that you could come in as an outsider and by winning elections, take over these parties from within through the primary system, which is porous because of the primary reforms instituted after 1968, makes these parties more open to uh, people trying to come in who don't have support from insiders and elites. That said, this effort in both parties has not gone nearly as far as we would have thought it might have gone in 2016, and as many people were hoping it would go in 2016. I think to respond to the question about anti-Trumpism being a problem or an opportunity, I think in 2016, it started out as an opportunity for the left. I know I wasn't around, but I know Philly Socialists really exploded after the election. Um, I think in part because of the Bernie campaign and interest in socialism, but also because people were 
kind of desperately looking for something outside of the Democratic Party, like something else. Um, I do think it's turned into a bit of a problem as we've seen like left messaging and um, policies and stuff co-opted by the Democratic Party without actually providing anything substantial. Um, so like defund the police being an example where they've kind of tried to use that to their advantage without actually doing anything to you know, prevent police violence or defund the police in any meaningful way. Like using the anti-Trumpism has become a way that they can agitate people for the democratic base without actually giving anything to the left or to people based on left demands. Has mm-hmm. become a way of reaching to a new generation of potential democratic supporters as opposed to creating an opposition to both parties. I think that um, during the past four years, it was very disappointing to see how the left basically just became another democratic front, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of funneling and wasting a lot of energy on the Bernie campaign rather than creating a, you know, what King was talking about, like another option. So really it's up to us now to be open, clear, and admit our mistakes and not do that again. And you know, try, like, a different route this time. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask the follow-up question, and actually this, I think, might connect well with that last statement by Mara. How did your organization, or how did you, prepare for a Biden presidency? What kind of education, what kind of activities did you prioritize among your members or your audience? What were the key debates that you engaged in the lead-up to this year's election? I mean, our education activities in preparation for a Biden presidency really have more to do with retrospective on the Bernie campaign than they do on Biden in particular. You know, what went wrong? How can we learn from this? What does it mean for for the next uh, you know decade or so? As far as key debates. Uh, that we engaged in in the lead up to elect the election, there was a a lot of debate in DSA over um, how far apart the organization and particularly leaders in the organization should stand apart from the Biden campaign mm-hmm. in particularly the last days of the election. Class Unity elected to take a pretty hard anti-Biden stance that I think doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things like you know dsa is not going to swing the election for joe biden one way or the other but we did feel that it was important to at least maintain uh some vague impression of independence from the from the democrats effort to unseat trump we well we read this um class unity article about the dsa and its relation to Uh, the Biden presidency and previously there was this Bernie or bus strategy that that changed when some of the the leading figures of the DSA through through the the back door is how um, it's described started to kind of came in with this like lesser evilism of a potential Biden victory yeah so at the 2019 DSA convention there was like a Bernie or bust motion put to the floor that passed, basically that said that 
uh, DSA would endorse no other candidate in the presidential election besides Bernie Sanders. Well, there was a potential for Warren to be the candidate too, so this was implemented as in against Biden and Warren as being potential um, Democratic Party leaders. I think at the time, the people who put forward the motion were probably doing so with Warren in mind more than anyone else. There was brief period of time where it looked like she might mount a serious challenge in the primary uh, and people wanted to kind of delineate ourselves from her and uh, the part of the democratic constituency that she represented. You know, this is kind of another way in which people get sort of wrapped up in the anti-Trumpism, particularly around uh, the threat of a coup, which was raised by a number of people in our organization, you know, like Donald Trump's going to call in the military or something and um, keep himself in office. And it's, uh, it's important to have as many people in the streets as possible or whatever in order to to stop that. So there's a way in which, as we got closer and closer to Election Day, people's uh, sober assessments of the situation kind of went out the window. And ultimately, and I think our article points this out, in service of making our leaders look like, you know, the good Democrat foot soldiers that they're expected to be in their day jobs. For some background, like Philly Socialist doesn't engage in electoralism. Um, it's something we vote on every year, so it could change, but we don't have our members like door knock or campaign or anything for anybody, even on a local level. So in a lot of ways, the like whether Biden or Trump won, it wasn't really going to change what we do on a daily basis and the way our organization functions. Similar to what Conrad said, there was some like conversation and debate about the response to the election um, within Philly Socialists and you know what it might look like if Biden won and Trump was to try to do something or if his supporters were to try to get violent or something. But like generally, preparing for the a Biden presidency looks kind of the same to us to preparing for a Trump presidency in a lot of ways. Um, it doesn't really change our organizing. To me, the fact that we got to Biden versus Trump, uh, it, it was a catastrophe for left-wing organizing because I think that really the only way forward in the United States is party capture. It can be one party or the other or both, but I don't think there is a non-electoral strategy that's viable. And I also don't think there's a third party strategy that's viable. I don't think there's very much we can do apart from party capture because the system is so heavily centralized around the two parties and democracy is so heavily entrenched in the country. And so the question is, if we can't make inroads into the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is ever more committed to becoming a very coastal, very professional party, what alternatives does that leave us with? And it has forced me to think in very experimental directions about uh, you know, could we attempt to make inroads into both parties at once? Could there be uh, two different kinds of party capture movements? Could we do something with the Republican Party in rural areas where the Democratic Party has a, a terrible reputation and no prospects of going anywhere? Uh, because for me, uh, we can't give up on demands like Medicare for all. We can't give up on demands like uh, you know, fixing the student debt situation. These are critical, essential demands that affect everybody. They're the biggest problems facing the country, and that's why they mobilize so many people, because they're so big and so important. 
And so we have to keep trying to do that. But the only way you can pass something like Medicare for all is to get senators in states like Kansas or Nebraska. We have to find a way to be competitive for Senate races in these states. And to me, the only way that we can get there is with some kind of dual realignment, dual party capture strategy, where we've got a willingness to uh, play on both sides of the culture war and enter both parties uh, from, from opposite sides of the cultural divide. And as long as the left remains thoroughly committed to waging one side of a culture war, it's not going to be able to win in a diverse set of places, uh, you know, really diverse set of places. And you need a diverse set of places to get major legislation through. I just wanted to raise some of the disagreements that I think that are coming to the surface. So there's this question of whether or not to break from a kind of electoral cycle altogether, right? The Caitlin brought up, like we are, we're, it doesn't really change what we're doing. We have this kind of long, more long-term vision and we're not bound to the electoral cycle. That's that's one thing that I'm hearing from our discussion. And Benjamin, you, you're, you're talking about this dual realignment that maybe there is this potential party capture strategy that not only could be done with the Democratic Party, but also from uh, in the Republican Party. And Conrad, I guess I, I hear that there's lessons to be learned from the Sanders campaign about maybe the nature of the DSA and its relationship to the Democratic Party and how you can work both within and outside of the party. So I, I wanted to maybe get you guys to flush these out. Like, how are these actually different strategies for the left? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, just to clarify, I would ask Mara and Caitlin, when you say break with the electoral cycle altogether, does that include like not running Philly socialist or socialist party candidates? Or is that just about uh, external parties? So that means that we don't run anybody we are not engaged in any electoral uh, work until maybe we see an opportunity where it will make sense. The strategy of Philly Socialists is to basically create a base where we can have an entirely new, actually working class leadership that uh, can come from it. And um, it's a long term strategy, basically. And if maybe in the future things are happening in a way that we see that electoralism fits into our strategy, we would do engage in it. We analyze the situation, and if it makes sense for us to do it, then we'll do it. I think that uh, personally, you know, um, there is like a lot of hope on a system that is already very broken. It, the United States is not even a truly a democracy, because even uh, when uh, the there is this whole thing with the popular vote and the electoral vote, or what is it, the, the electoral college can do whatever they want either way. So what's the point of going for chasing after votes that are not even going to count? So uh, you are playing a game where you are not even a, given all the pieces instead of building an entirely new game with your own pieces. And that's kind of like what we are trying to do, basically. It just doesn't make any sense to try to, you know, um, change a capitalist system that is not... We are anti-capitalist. Why would we try to work with capitalists? Like, it just, at the base of it, makes no sense to me. When would it be strategically good to work within the electoral system? What is that assessment based on? I would say that I will be okay with maybe doing electoralism in, locally in Philly if we had, for instance, we have been working with tenants for many years, right? If we had like 
when we decided that we wanted to create a base around tenants' issues, there was nothing, nobody else doing that in Philly, right? Uh, and then after four, five years of doing this kind of work, it became a very popular, like, topic, right? People, other groups started doing it, new organizations started coming out uh, to work around it. And then somebody in Philly, that is not us, it was nobody, but somebody who's very progressive in Philly ran on this camp, on, on this platform that was already, that was already created and she was able to win. When we, when we think about creating a base, this is what we're talking about, right? That, that's like just many of the things that I guess I personally would think about and also encourage other people to think about. Cause like, we're always talking about this, like, oh, the revolution, as if it was like the coming of Christ, Christ or some shit like that, right? Um, but we never know when Christ is coming. So we never know when the revolution is coming. So how do you know um, uh, when people are going to be ready to revolt and how do you analyze the situation to take an opportunity? But I personally don't think that taking that energy and investing it on electoralism is the smartest way. So I, yeah. On the one hand, we have this um, base building strategy. Christ isn't coming anytime soon, and certainly it's not coming through the Democratic Party. We talk about the revolution abstractly, so we build a base, and from this base, through tenant union organizing, etc., we could potentially have a future in which we had working class leaders to lead some future party, which we might call socialist. So, Conrad, when, when is Christ coming? <laughs> when is Christ coming? <laughs> it's very unclear. And... As per usual, when Christ doesn't come, there's always someone there to tell you that, um, you know, the old prophecies were technically incorrect in some way, but we've uh, corrected our measurements and we'll be sure next time. I, I think I have questions for all the other members of the roundtable, maybe starting with the folks from Philly Socialists. Any socialist party would obviously need a, a social base to, you know, like conduct any business and have any coherence whatsoever. But at the same time, community organizing idea has been a bread and butter part of Democratic Party politics since, you know, thinking about the war on poverty and kind of that era. I'm really sympathetic to the worry about uh, kind of folding into the Democrats via um, elections, but it seems like with this, you know, base building community organizing stuff, like, isn't there a real risk that you turn away from the Democrats in the elections and, you know, like some sort of vampire, uh, they're just right there behind you again when you start trying to, um, to base build? And isn't there a risk that you're, in effect, training the next generation, Democrat activists, politicians, community organization workers, something that I struggle with as well, because, you know, as I said, clearly a socialist party would need some sort of autonomous social existence outside of just its strictly political activities. I think there, I mean, there's certainly a risk of that, but I think it comes down to like political education and a big part of base building is relationship building. Yeah, there's definitely a risk that we could be working with people who end up just becoming, you know, leaders of the Demo in the local Democratic Party, but part of our strategy is building those relationships with the people we organize throughout the neighborhoods in Philadelphia and incorporating, you know, different types of political education. We just started actually doing 
um, and organizing school for, you know, we pull leaders from like the central committee as well as from some of the projects and stuff. And so, yeah, if people come out of community organizing and end up being a Democrat, like as long as we're incorporating that political education and keeping those relationships, I mean, that's kind of, you know, hopefully it goes our way and building up those leaders to be socialists and not Democrats. Yeah, and I guess just to follow up, in DSA, I've found that people um, are not that interested in engaging with education in a particularly deep way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like if you explain to someone that, you know, there are opportunities to learn, but maybe you'll have to read a few hundred pages, like a few hundred pages is just a bridge too far. Do you guys find that, like, do you think that your political education efforts are reaching the people that you're trying to base build with? Or do you think they're only going halfway? Yeah, I think it it can be really hard, even with people who are already socialist or socialist leaning, the political education aspect. But um, so like an example would be CARP, which is our mutual aid program, recently started doing um, just like small groups kind of with the people who have come into the neighborhood to hand out supplies and stuff. And I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, you're not gonna like suddenly have a huge group of people who are like coming to sit for an hour and read things, but there are ways that you can kind of incorporate it into the activities that you're already doing. Yeah, I do. I am very sympathetic to what you're saying, uh, Conrad. I um, it does have. I have definitely met tons of people through organizing that have uh, organized with us for six months, a couple of years, or whatever, and then they, it turns into a couple of years or something. Let's be real. Sometimes a lot of people use it on the resume and all that. And I guess what I've learned, and I've come, I become very okay with it because it's like, well, you know what? If it's, it's this person, even it's just going, if it was just like a time for them to like to learn how to be like organizers and how to build relationships, and we have a, a, a positive relationship with this person who might even be in a good position at some point in the future, maybe a lawyer, maybe somebody else. Like it's actually like helpful, you know. And even if we are paving the way for, like, say, like the Democrats or something like that now, right, for now, what is it, if they are doing something that is going to make the life of, like, working class people better right now, why, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Why is that a bad thing, right? If their political awareness is, like, the same, that's really the people who are forming the party, you know, even if, like, they are not, like, 100% the most, like, radical person in the room. It actually brings up this issue of whether or not we're organizing for socialism. Somehow these things are connected, right? Like you you build the base and then somehow from the base there comes a, a party or the prospects of a party. And then that could lead to some sort of greater future where we don't have to vote for Democrats. So Ben, like, because your strategy is actually quite distinct. So the capturing of the party of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, is not about base building. It's about using like the already established instruments of power. And is this also like a pathway towards socialism or what, what is it? How do you see it? Well, I'll come on to the end game, but I, I want to talk a little bit about how it differs from some of these other approaches. My, my approach is a medium term approach. Short term approaches mean collaborating with Joe Biden and the Democrats, hoping that they'll give you something and getting nothing. Long term approaches mean betting on political education, transforming people's attitudes to the Constitution and to what is understood, rightly or wrongly, as democracy in the United States fundamentally. Uh, And the problem with political education is that education requires leisure time. 
education requires free time to get educated. And that time comes from somebody. Time to be generated has to come from exploitation. So you can't really get educated about anything. All education, including going to university, going to get a PhD, requires time that other people pay for. Do you know, Ben, before Netflix and Chill, people did read lengthy pamphlets written by, I don't know, Lenin, or his contenders, um, or his comrades, and they were read en masse by working people. Yeah, before podcasts. Before podcasts, <laughs> it's true. Lenin was leading a vanguard party. It's not as if every peasant in Russia was reading those pamphlets. Many of the peasants in Russia yes. couldn't read. Yes. Uh, the issue here is that whenever you have an education strategy, the strategy is necessarily an elitist approach. It's necessarily an elitist approach. And I think that needs to be recognized. We're not going to have a country where large numbers of people have the time and energy, the surplus time and energy that's necessary to get educated so that they can be part of a revolutionary cadre. And our system is designed to sap people's time and energy, to deprive them of these things so that they can't organize. And that's a serious problem with education approaches. And I think it's also got to be recognized that despite all of the yelling about Trump and fascism and, and uh, AOC and communism from the Democrats and the Republicans, the reason that the Democrats and the Republicans push our norms as far as they push them is that they're so confident in the underlying stability of democracy as of what they understand as democracy as a regime type in this country. This is a very, very deeply rooted, very powerful state, extremely powerful state. And I think that revolution underestimates its power dramatically. And that's why it's always pitched as a long-term strategy, because they know that there's no immediate prospect of revolution. The thing is, we've got climate change coming. We've got uh, people who don't have health care. We've got people mired in student debt, and they don't have time for long term. So they're not going to get anything from sucking up to Biden and the Democrats, but they're also not going to get anything from a revolutionary strategy. What we have to do is look for a medium term approach where we can use what's already available and find ways of inserting ourselves into the discourses that already exist and into the machinery of society that already exists, because it takes a very long time to re-educate a population or to create a whole new set of organizations. It takes decades, and we don't have decades on a lot of these issues. Ordinary people don't have decades, and ordinary people aren't sympathetic to approaches that don't deliver or don't have any prospect of delivering near-term results. Now, in terms of what I'm, where I would go with this strategy if we were able to, to get some level of realignment, I think there are a couple of things. So firstly, a lot of these reforms that we're talking about are non-reformist reforms. They're reforms which, once implemented, change the way that people relate to the state, change people's expectations for the state, and shift those expectations up so that people make more aggressive demands, economic and material demands on the state, so that we can push for more stuff like universal food stamps. We can push for you know, a right to energy. We can just keep expanding the set of this stuff gradually out because they raise the consciousness and raise the expectations. And it's people's living conditions. It's the conditions under which people live that shapes what they expect from the state. It's not education. It's whether people experience the state as giving them stuff and being there for them, right? If they're getting stuff from the state, then they're going to start to make more demands on the state. They're going to want more from the state. And in the long run, we're going to come to a point where we've got greater levels of automation, and that's going to create greater levels of economic disruption. And if when we get to this level of automation, we have a lot of robust social programs, and it's very commonly understood in our society that we take care of people and meet people's basic needs, then there's potential for that automation to be used to give people higher living standards. 
But if we don't have that other stuff, we don't have that other stuff, then when that automation comes out, we're going to get UBI programs like Andrew Yang's, which are predicated on ripping apart social welfare programs and leaving people with a bare bones income. So we're gradually, it, the thing about socialism and communism is that for Marxists, they come out of capitalism, out of the existing order. They develop out of the existing order. So everything that we do has to come out of what already is. The new society has to be born within the bosom of the old society. So you can't have a clean break or a transcendental moment where you get something totally new. It's got to grow out of what we already have. Student radicals in the 1960s were, well, they were educated. And that was a problem. Okay. So I think Eugene Debs has been overhanging this conversation for me and Pam and I were discussing Debs um, coming up uh, ahead of this recording as well. I just wanted to read a bit from his Labour and Freedom speech that I think he gave in 1913. And for those that don't know, Eugene Debs is, was uh, a Marxist and, a, and a, a leading American socialist. Um, so in this speech, he writes, there is no fundamental difference between the Republican and Democratic parties. Their principles are identical. Uh, they are both capitalist parties and both stand for the capitalist system. And such differences as there are between them involve no principle, but the outgrowth of the conflicting interests of large and small capitalists. And I guess that Debs has overhung the conversation for me because we've had um, from Conrad, who's mentioned the Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders, and we've had this party capture idea from Benjamin and from Mara, we've had this conversation about um, people through the uh, Philly Socialist work, um, people kind of feeding into the, being fed into the Democratic Party system. Um, and, and what about that? So I'm wondering how and why has the left sentiment to the American two-party system changed since Debs' moment? I, I do agree that, I think for Philly Socialists, we pretty much agree with Debs here that there is really not much of a difference. In fact, I think sometimes the Democratic Party has fewer principles than the Republican Party. I also agree with Ben that, like you were saying earlier, um, we don't have a lot of time. I think the main difference is like putting our energy into candidates, whereas I think throughout history we've seen a lot of change come from the power of movements and not from candidates. While it is helpful to have people who are sympathetic in office, it's really the movement power that changes things and wins the demands that we want. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's much difference between the Democratic and Republican Party. And I think sometimes the way that the, the Democratic Party, the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party can make things worse in a lot of ways. Um, just like an example, Citations Needed podcast was talking about this recently with climate change and the way that the Democratic Party will speak to climate change and say that it's important and how we need to change things, but then basically does the opposite, whereas at least with the Republican Party, they say they don't believe it, and then they follow through. Where uh, with the Democratic Party, speaking to how urgent it is and then not doing anything makes it seem significantly less urgent. So I think that, and kind of backfires on the movement for you know Green New Deal or any of these things that could change anything and help us prevent climate change from like destroying us so yeah now i guess that things have been laid out i'm still unclear whether or not there is agreement here among among us about the end goal of socialism so now climate change has been brought in uh green new deal has been brought in i think that benjamin you talked about demands from the state 
and what can we get from the state and all of this seems to fit in with a kind of like social democratic sort of progressive understanding and not necessarily the fight for socialism the overcoming of class and I don't want to be thrown into, I don't know, a kind of impossible conversation. And yet I feel like what's been naturalized in our discussion is that, A, we should get working people demands and that the state should meet those demands and that we have little time left because of climate change and that this is why we need like progressive policies in the state uh, to step in. What is the long-term goal for socialism about? Is it about giving the state greater power to provide goods for working people? Is that what the end goal is of left politics? Well, I, for me, the end goal of left politics is that when we get to a point where capitalism finishes developing the means of production and we get robots, which I don't know when that will happen, but that's the end of capitalism. When we have robots and the employer-employee relationship is completely garbage and no longer makes any sense from a productive standpoint, we then have a question that we face as to what to do. Do we treat all of the people who used to work as surplus people that we don't need, that we get rid of or throw away or pay a tiny Andrew Yang UBI to to go away? Or do we give those people an opportunity to live life how they choose to live it by distributing resources in such a way that they can do that. Uh, we have to have a population at that point which is convinced that that is necessary and convinced that people are entitled to stuff regardless of whether or not they work. Uh, that is the critical moment that will come. And I think that attempting to transition to a post-capitalist regime before the robots have fully developed will probably not be successful. We have to get all the way through capitalism before we can go to the next thing. And getting all the way through capitalism means getting to the point where the employer-employee relationship itself becomes a contradiction. And what we have to do is somehow make an intervention in the American political system to capture these parties before the Republican Party turns into a nationalist party, a really nationalist party that's genuinely interested in ripping apart the international system and pursuing uh, the expropriation of whatever states are necessary to keep the American state going as climate change makes it more and more difficult for people to get by. That's where we're going. We're going toward a world where climate change leads to a huge amount of right-wing nationalism. So that's why we don't have time and we have to do something to get the discourse going in a different direction. Because the back and forth between the do-nothing establishment Democrats and increasingly right-wing Republicans, that back and forth, if it's not disrupted soon, will lead to a Republican who's interested in pursuing a very, very nationalist agenda. And that will make it impossible for anybody to do socialism anywhere or to do communism anywhere or to do anything left-wing anywhere. So, Conrad, I want to bring you in because I, I think that one of the things that um, our education in Platypus has taught us is that sometimes the, the left starts to repeat itself. Um, and so one of the ways in which this has happened is a kind of lesser evil-ism strategy or a kind of politics of if we don't support the progressives, we may have fascism around the corner or we have a crisis uh, looming and therefore we have to do what's necessary now. And it seems like throughout the 20th century, that strategy has has led actually right back to progressive uh, liberal leadership and, and not uh, building the possibility for socialism. And so like how, 
yeah, how do we get out of this cycle where people, um, I mean, even the left participates in sort of frightening people into activity and not necessarily for socialism. I, I asked you because you're in an organization that has socialism in its name. So the Democratic Socialist of America. So how are we, like, how does this help us build socialism and not just scare people about climate change and the future right-wing character of the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, I would say that appeals to the perceived fact that we're running out of time or that there's a great danger around the corner that we need to ameliorate right now and you know do whatever is necessary really provide a very serious obstacle for the development of socialist organizations in in america and everywhere else by extension if it's true that we face a existential threat either from climate change or the republicans or both, then I don't really see why we're sitting around talking about socialism at all. I think we should just go join the Democrats and fight as hard as we can to uh, pass some laws that make international shipping companies use natural gas instead of bunker fuel or um, demand that states in the United States shift X percentage of their, their electrical production from hydrocarbons to, to nuclear renewables or whatever. It just seems like this shortening of the time horizons uh, is in direct contradiction to what appears like a very, very difficult problem and one that we are not liable to get out of anytime soon, which is, you know, the absence of independent uh, socialist activity in the United States. So I've got one last question, and if you could all answer it in kind of one or two sentences to kind of finish up. What should the left do under four four years of Biden? Like, what's the agenda? What should we do? What is to be done? Four years, the left. If you had a magic wand and you could make the left just organize, discipline itself, what should be done in the next four years under the Biden presidency? I guess I never imagined myself as the type of person who has a magic wand. <laughs> but I guess if I did have one, I would hope for you know, either a socialist party or a socialist organization that educated people um, as one of its primary goals uh, successfully through something other than podcasts. And that at every turn expressed its independence from the two major parties. I may have misspoken. So what I mean to say, it's not like you're just going to make the socialist party appear. Oh, okay. <laughs> but if your end goal is the Socialist Party, what should we do in those four years? If you somehow could make the left do something disciplined and organized, and like, if your end goal is the Socialist Party, what do you do in the four years under Biden to work towards that goal? Me personally, I'm going to sit around and think about it. Because I'm not sure that within DSA, there's something that can be done to make that happen at this point. Damn. Damn. I would have every socialist organization go find people on the ground, workers, and recruit them to run. And I would have them do it in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And if you're a socialist organization in a red state, you can call yourself some vague name like the American Solidarity Organization or something, or the Let's Have America you know, Do Great Things Party, whatever you want. But I would go in, I would find people, ordinary people, who are aggravated about 
what's going on economically. And I would say, hey, you seem like a great person. Let's let's run you. And I would draft people everywhere. And I would do it Republicans in red areas, Democrats in blue areas. And I wouldn't care what their cultural attitudes are as long as they you know, are willing to not center those too much in their campaigning. So like number one is basically getting serious, understanding we have to make sacrifices across the board and seriously strategizing and pushing through movement and organizing based on like class interests, like through labor and tenant organizing to connect to people where they are and radicalize and do it with urgency and seriousness. Well, I guess to close up, uh, I think um, Feeling Socialist is not the only organization in the United States that uh, it's trying to uh, build the base for a socialist party. I had written something out earlier that, I don't know, maybe like a closing, it's like um, the United States is a fundamentally anti-communist and anti-socialist formation, and uh, they will never allow us to say, to have a say in the current like uh, system uh, that is for working class people. And you asked earlier, like, what, what should be the, the end goal for like the socialists in the United States? And the end goal should be to change the system that we have right now for one that is run by actually working class people for the interests of the working class um and this is not gonna happen you know i know your question was about the next four years kind of related to the longer term and yeah it's not something that's gonna happen in the next four years maybe not even in the next eight or the next 12. it might not even have something that happened during our lifetime right so we have to build with the mentality that is going to happen in the future and things might climate change might take the best part of the the entire planet by the time that we have a socialist future or we might not you know but in the process of organizing people we are able to win things for the people as well as radicalizing radicalizing people and i would encourage people to do that to put yourself behind the people that come after you like the people that are coming in the future like the people that are coming later rather than thinking about yourself so that you don't you don't fall for the um for the lesser evil mentality, basically. Like the lesser evil mentality is like, how do I make things better for me right now? Instead of thinking, all right, so this might make things better right now, but is it gonna make things better in the future? You know, and just think that. Uh, and yeah, find an organization. And there is a lot of organizations in the United States. Like we are, we're forming something called the Marxist Center, uh, which is basically a lot of organizations with very similar kind of politics to Philly socialists that are kind of base building mentality. And we do a lot of kind of like labor and tenant work and also uh, kind of land bank uh, work. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would encourage you to kind of reach out to the Marxist Center and find out like if there's like a chapter local to you or something. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Thank you. Yeah, we'll post uh, links to everyone's projects and organizations and to uh, Ben's writings and Twitter, etc. So everyone can find out more. Thank you so much for joining us in this somewhat lengthy conversation, but I thought illuminating. thought that it was, it was a good exchange. And yeah, thank you so much. It's good to finally be on the official sexual taboos in the Lock Day podcast. <laughs> yeah. Breaking the sexual taboos podcast. <laughs> 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 Thanks a bunch. Bye. Thanks.